This is WJCT News 89.9 in Jacksonville. Opinions expressed on the First Coast Week in Review are those of our panelists and do not necessarily reflect the views of WJCT News 89.9. Good morning. I'm Ann Schindler. It's Friday, which means it's time for our First Coast Week in Review. Among our topics, a new investigation shows a police killing happened on the prior mayor's watch. A state Republican supported bill favored by white supremacists, conservative opposition to civics lessons, and a regulatory nightmare for a St. Augustine dream home. To talk about all that and more, I'm joined by Will Brown, race, poverty, and inequality reporter for Jacksonville Today. Welcome, Will. Good morning. Good to have you on. Jasmine Monroe, anchor and reporter at First Coast News. Hey, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Claire Goforth, attorney and investigative reporter at The Daily Dot. Good morning. Hey, Claire. And Nate Monroe, Metro columnist for the Florida Times Union. Hey, Nate. Good morning. Thanks, all of you, for being here. Nate, I will kick it off with you since you had a story that published just last night. Um, I sort of misspoke in the lead. It wasn't a, a police killing that happened last year. It was a settlement in a police killing that um has been in the news and had a lot of controversy lately. Catch us up on what new documents you got and what they tell us. Yeah, so um, we're talking about a settlement in uh, litigation that is related to the death of Jamie Johnson, uh, who was a FAMU student uh, who was killed during the course of a traffic stop in 2019 by a JSO officer. Uh, His parents filed a federal lawsuit against the city seeking to hold them liable for the death. in the city, uh, last year, uh, reached a settlement in that case, settled it for uh, $200,000. By city standards, this is not a very large settlement. Um, and months after that, the, the sheriff, uh, when reporters noticed that the, that the federal lawsuit was, was kind of dispensed with, the sheriff uh, complained about the settlement, said that he was not given proper notification, uh, that he had he been notified, he he would have pushed the city to take the case to trial, um, and and so there's now legislation before the city council that that the sheriff is is advocating for that would effectively give him sort of veto power over uh, future settlements of this kind. Now the council's amended that bill some, but that was sort of the original idea and. Throughout this discourse, there, there has been an undercurrent, and, and sometimes I would say more than that, maybe an overcurrent of um, an implication that like somebody did something wrong, that like city employees and, and maybe by extension the Deegan administration screwed this up somehow, didn't follow something, didn't do something right. And in fact, the sheriff's the term he he has used several times that he wasn't re- receiving proper notification of the settlement. Um, uh, what the the kind of overall record shows and, and what uh, I, I got some some documentation yesterday that th- the city attorneys had had already sort of resolved that a settlement was the way to handle this case before Donna Deegan took office. And really about two weeks into her time in office, they actually had the framework of a settlement in hand. And so this is a time when the Deegan administration is responsible for putting together like a one and a half billion dollar general fund budget to take to the council. The idea that that like this settlement reached like high levels on the fourth floor during this time is just pretty fanciful. And and so I think like we have a better picture now of what the timeline is. And, you know, there, there's just the, the, the folks who handled this, the city employees who handle this this litigation, 
in the settlement followed the ordinance code. Uh, There's no evidence anything improper happened. And the sheriff did, in fact, receive notification of this settlement being reached. I mean, if he thinks it wasn't proper, I mean, I can't argue with his feelings, but there was nothing improper that occurred here. Another thing that you found was that the officer involved um, in who is also being sued in this case was also involved in those mediation discussions way back in May. Um, And so there was not any sense that that he was left out of the loop. Your previous reporting had shown that the sheriff and the undersheriff had been notified um, before the the deal was finalized in August. Yeah, I mean, so the the lawsuit was uh, it included. uh, the the officer involved in the shooting was was one of the defendants in the case, and and unlike the sheriff's office, like when the sheriff's office is is named in a lawsuit, you're, you're really suing the city. Like the city is the is the responsible party for paying any bills. In the case of the officer, if if they had gone to trial and, and this had not gone their way, I mean the officer becomes personally liable for for a, an, an adverse judgment, and so the city settling this case protects the officer from from that liability. Um, and so in some ways, it's a little odd for the sheriff to be arguing about we should be taking these things to trial. I mean, in some ways, it's just sort of an odd case for, for him to be making. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, what, we, what we have is confirmation that, that at least the officer was uh, uh, slated to participate in the mediation sessions and he was invited to attend them. Um, I believe he did, and uh, I believe he did attend them. And I think the sheriff even kind of obliquely acknowledged to the council this week that the sheriff, that the officer was consulted or, or did give consent to settle this case. You know, the sheriff said, you know, he felt like he had to, and I don't know if that was an effort to imply something untoward, but like that's what settlements are. You settle them because you feel like you have to. Nobody is like, hey like go get a six pack so we can go settle this case. Like it's, this is unpleasant business. And that's just a way of dealing with this issue uh, and minimizing the risk as much as you can. That's what a settlement is. And in that settlement, uh, Jasmine Monroe, um, they say, you know, this is basically to avoid additional costs that could be incurred. It's kind of the best solution for everybody. But, you know, this was a tough case for the sheriff's office. This kind of brings up the, the difficulty the issues surrounding the shooting of this um, teenager, the circumstances of the traffic stop. Um, So what are the implications for that for the sheriff's office? They've been kind of uh, in their feelings about having to discuss this case again. Yeah, I mean, uh, pretty much just seeing what they're saying, even as you mentioned it, uh, when it comes to a settlement, no one's going to be happy. I think the best settlement, even with journalism, uh, when both sides are unhappy, you kind of did your job, right? So I think you know, when you're looking at this case myself, I'm still new to uh, Jacksonville. I watched the video myself. It's definitely an unsettling part. There's two sides to every story. But um, I think the, for the best instance, making this settlement and taking this settlement is it's the best thing that you can do. And it's important to note, they were, the family was asking for $5 million. $5 million. So and they received 200000 Um So when I was looking into it, you know, it that's a red flag to me of stating, you know, you're going from $5 million to 200000 you know, that's thinking it from my perspective. It's it's not a win, but it, it is something. Yeah. And uh, Will Brown, the um, you know, the, the investigation that the that the city's office of, or the excuse me, the state attorney did found that, you know, cleared the officer of any wrongdoing. This was a civil case. Correct. And it was not something that was going to be, you know, taken 
elsewhere after this. It's already been resolved from a criminal investigatory standpoint. That's my understanding as well. So to be done with the case for $200,000, I mean, conceivably, you'd be paying that much or more in lawyer's fees alone if it went to trial. It does seem, um, Claire, that this is, you know, continuing the conversation of conflict between the mayor's office, perceived conflict between the mayor's office and the sheriff who, you know, openly opposed her when she was running, um, you know, in ads and and, and all else. Um, and I believe in Nate's reporting, you know, he went back and listened to the council meeting where Ron Salem was sort of pointing this out specifically as a failing of this mayor to communicate with this sheriff um, and the general counsel's office appropriately. Um, how much of this is just kind of political um, and how much of it is, you know, the sheriff really feeling left out of the loop? I would say it's probably 100 percent political, honestly. Um, you know, the settlement came out in the previous administration and then the sheriff turns around and tries to use it as a way to paint Mayor Deegan as anti-cop, essentially, you know, and to undermine her support in that way. I think it's important for us to also note peripherally that if this had gone to trial, you know, the sheriff has said that, you know, makes the officer look bad that we settled. It makes it look like he did something wrong, even though he was cleared. But if this had gone to trial, you know, they're going to be digging up every single thing in this officer's record from his personnel file to his actual personal life Mm -hmm. and trying to paint him in a certain way. And how is that going to affect his reputation moving forward? How is that going to affect the reputation of JSO and the city itself? I would think most people would argue that that would be a drawn out, painful process for both the family of Jamie Johnson and the officer himself. And it would also be extremely expensive. These types of trials are very expensive. They take a long time. And then there's the appeals process, which often occurs. I mean, honestly, you know, as Jasmine said, they basically found a way to split the baby in this case. Um, You know, and it's a shame that Sheriff Waters seems to think that JSO should be uh, free of criticism from outside agencies, but then feels as though he should be in a position to criticize city attorneys. Well, that's not his purview. Um, you know, I'm certainly he knows the law and I'm probably is coming from a place of wanting to protect the agency and his officers, but also score political points. But he's you know, he's not a city attorney. Mm-hmm. Um, we're talking about the week's biggest headlines. We'd love to hear from you. You can give us a call at 904-549-2937. You can also email us at firstcoastconnect at WJCT.org or reach out on uh, social media. We are on Facebook and Instagram, and you can also tag us on X at FCC on air. Will, I see you are wanting to comment there. So I think of this discussion where the sheriff says, or or people representing the sheriff's office saying that this could uh, impugn the reputation and it's uh, lowering the reputation of JSO in the community. Well, I talk to folks frequently about ways that JSO can actually gain more trust. And there are three things that I take away, and none of them have anything to do with this case. One of which is, you know, I heard after the Dollar General shooting, be more responsive, be quicker to arrive on the scene. That's a way to foster trust in the community, more so than arguing over the merits of whether a payout should go to someone who was shot and killed by the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office. Another thing was quicker acknowledgement when there's something that could go wrong. Instead of just like waiting a couple of days, then releasing a statement. Again, these are things that people in the community are saying to me that they would like to see from JSO. What, what do you mean by something that could go wrong? Uh, so, you know, um, I, I think uh, when 
in situations like this, like in uh, situations like this shooting or or when there's a an officer shoots someone, um, a little bit being a little quicker with this with the public Proactive. statement of mm-hmm. what actually happened and releasing the information faster, releasing the video cam, the I body think cam it could footage. Backfire though, sometimes it could, but that's that's what folks in the community are saying. Like this is a way to just you know kind of put all of your cards on the table, JSO, and and we can we can decide we as the community can decide i think a lot of people oftentimes think that faster and quicker is better and not always is that good i agree with you there so uh when you think about it you you go to a police shooting and it happens you seriously have to assess the situation from both ends half the time the person who it affected is in an emotional state so you have to get people back down to reality and what happened and take place and and walk those steps back so i'm Sometimes, sometimes personally, when I when I think about it, it's always, you know, faster is better. As long as you're transparent is what I say. I would ask for transparency. I just want I just want to know the truth. Something um, I I do just want to make sure is clear uh, for context too. this settlement or in the course of this settlement, the city has been incredibly defensive of the officer Um, in the city, like essentially echoed the state attorney's findings, but just in a civil context. I mean, essentially just said he did everything right. You're never going to be able to prove that, uh, you know, we're, we're either he or, or the city is, is liable. Um, they just made a calculation that the cost, the literal cost of going to trial was going to be more than $200,000. Like this is just an incredibly reasonable thing to conclude in, in, in the sheriff's office on this on this idea that the settlement frayed their ties with the community, I mean, I, I have a little bit of cognitive dissonance listening to them talk about that because on the one hand, they'll, they'll express concern about that, but then they also project a lot of anger about this, about the settlement, about the shooting, about the facts of the shooting, and, and they sometimes even use pretty provocative language when talking about Jamie Johnson. Uh, that he was, uh, you know, he he tried to kill our cop. And look, you can believe that the officer was justified in the shooting and also think that Jamie Johnson's death was tragic. These are not like incompatible ideas. And what I saw this week from JSO was no recognition of that whatsoever. And I would suggest that that sort of defiance uh, is as much a factor in whatever level of community distrust there is as as the settlement. Um, and so I, I think JSO needs to look a little bit inward if they are concerned about their agency's ties with the community. This is something that um, Ken Amaro, who is a city council member now, brought up in terms of, you know, does this settlement fray the reputation of the agency in the eyes of the community, Claire? But he said, you know, also the incident itself probably plays a larger role in terms of how the community uh, perceives JSO. Well, a young man gets pulled over for a traffic stop that seemed at best, you know, maybe not pretextual, but uh, it wasn't exactly like he was running from the cops. Seatbelt violation. Seatbelt violation with a gun hanging out the window, and he ended up dead. I mean, how does the community look at that? A young, another young black man who gets killed um, after a traffic stop for a, a seatbelt violation. A traffic stop not made by a, a traffic officer. I mean, this was a violent crime reduction strategy. Right. Pulling someone over for a seatbelt. I mean, that is pretextual. That is a pretextual stop. Fair enough, And yes. that is a policy choice that JSO is making. These are discretionary stops. There is a lot of research about the you know whether these this kind of strategy is effective at reducing violent crime is completely in doubt. And there is a lot of acknowledgement 
in in the law enforcement world that these kind of stops can spin out of control. That is exactly what happened here. Jamie Johnson did not wake up that December 2019 day thinking he was going to kill a cop. This is a college student with no criminal history. It, you know, you look at the video, like he panicked, tried to run again. You can believe these things and, and also not impugn the, the officer. Maybe the officer fear for his life. Like there is some uncertainty in the video, but like this, this isn't just this clear narrative that, that a cop killer died that day. Well, but I want, yeah, I think it's important to remember that when law enforcement pulls someone over, law enforcement officers have training. The person who's getting pulled over, most of us are not experienced in getting pulled over. And so it can be very stressful for anyone. Mm-hmm. But I can tell you, as a black man in this country, when I see lights come on, sometimes I'm like, oh, God, oh, God, did I do everything right? Okay, my seatbelt's on. All right, where's my license and registration? Is it somewhere I have to go, like, reach far for? Are my hands visible? Okay, are there people around? Those are things that go through my mind every single time I see uh, uh, lights flashing behind me. And before anyone says, oh, you're anti-cop. No, no, no. My oldest brother was a police officer who was called By the Book Brown. I love police officers. By the book, Brown. <laughs> so, so let's get that out of the way. But when those lights flash on, some people who aren't trained just panic. And that happens. But law enforcement has training. And that should help them in that circumstance. Uh, Jasmine, I want to just touch on another uh, issue that came out this week, another headline involving JSO, which was the um, sheriff did a press conference to announce the arrest of an officer. Um it was just the second officer this year, but this one indicated kind of a higher level of perhaps intent corruption. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, us watching in the newsroom of uh, Sheriff T.K. Waters coming out and explaining um, that possible, you know, this officer had possible uh, ties with gangs. I mean, that's that's a headline in itself. To me personally, I'm thinking this is going to make national news. And that's when I come back to full transparency is you know, they're doing the investigation. They said they did an internal investigation and that's how they got to this point. But um, it's definitely something when you think about this story, a lot's going to have to come out. Sharing text messages, uh, possibly uh, ties to connections to other things. Uh, that's a red flag. Claire, how do you think this sheriff is doing in terms of transparency? I mean, that is one of his uh, primary goals and, and assertions. Um, and there have been some changes you know, for instance, the notifications of jail deaths. I mean, we've been reporting on it. A lot of people have been reporting on the number, the fact of it. But um, prior administrations never notified the media or anyone else when someone died in jail. Um, so, you know, that's a headline that's created um, because of transparency. Yes. And it's good to see those um, strides towards more transparency. But, you know, like Jasmine, I have a lot of uh, concerns about the fact that, according to JSO, one of their own officers was using police databases to feed information to people involved in gang activity. And for what purpose? I think we will find out. Um, credit to the sheriff for coming forward with this. I mean, but to say only the second arrest this year, it's the beginning of February. Um, that's two officers who are tasked with enforcing the law in our community who are allegedly breaking it themselves on the job. Well, to be clear, not coming forward and being transparent about an officer being arrested for these kinds of accusations would be like a massive scandal. Like this is his job is to do this. So like 
I don't know that I consider that transparency. Like that is that is precisely what they should be doing. And were they not doing it, it would be a huge scandal. And so, um, Will, this could impair future cases. Um, This is an officer that, you know, conceivably will end up on the so-called Brady list, which means, you know, he can't testify in a case that he's not considered a reliable witness. Um, And that's something that the state attorney's office is going to have to kind of dig through and see how consequential his involvement was. And, and I'm looking for more information to, to come out about this particular officer's involvement and what specifically they were doing. Because just like Jasmine said, like when when our reporter Stephen Ponson said, was listening in on the conference, I said, what? That happened? That is wild. Um, so just looking for more information is, is going to be critical because it could have reverberations that we don't even know at this moment. I think even talking about this officer in other cases too as well, you're going to have to look at every case that he was involved in um, when it comes down to it, not just the cases that they are talking about, but if if it was a traffic stop, you know, for instance, not to tie those stories together because they have nothing to do with each other, but still, I mean, it just makes you paint the picture to look at the situation on a bigger scale of knowing you have to look inside and you have to admit sometimes you do quote unquote, have bad apples. Mm -hmm. I mean, what tarnishes JSO's reputation more, the Jamie Johnson settlement or this, right? Like, is is this anger being misdirected a little bit, you know, over the settlement? Like, that is the through line I see in those two stories. It's a fair question. Um, Let's move on. We're going to talk about a story that you did this week, Will. Uh, You learned that Moms for Liberty um, of Duval, that's the conservative activist group that's pushed for book bans, among other things, um, would not formally object to the new social studies books that uh, the Duval County School District purchased. Um, why Why was that a little bit of a surprise for us? Well, when the district announced that it was purchasing $13 million of textbooks for its social studies and science curriculum, they you know, said there's going to be a 30-day period where people could object to the textbook purchases. The the textbooks are all available on their website. There are portions of those textbooks that are available digitally and people could have gone to Prudential Drive and reviewed them. But Moms for Liberty uh, on the conservative side and then the public school defenders on the liberal side, if you could call it that, uh, both expressed that they wanted to review the books. Uh, Both of them had stood at public comment for more than a year uh, of school board meetings just peppering the school district with questions and, and their position and for for neither of them to object was a, a bit surprising considering they said they both organizations said they would review the books themselves uh, the thing that uh, I spoke with uh, the curriculum chair of the Duval Moms for Liberty she is a candidate for school board um, you know she mentioned that parents should be paying more attention to the books the textbooks that their students have not just the books in libraries mm-hmm. and that was their biggest position, more less than objecting to the books themselves, but really encouraging parents, not just Moms for Liberty members, to look at the texts that their children are reading and consuming while in school. We're talking about the biggest stories of the week um, with our panel, Week in Review. Uh, you can give us a call at 904-549-2937. You can email us at firstcoastconnect.wjct.org or reach out on social media we have a call from Eric in Arlington. Good morning, Eric. Welcome to First Coast Connect. Uh, yeah, I was calling about the police uh, thing that you y'all were just talking about a minute ago. You know, if, if you're if if you live in a fancy pants neighborhood and the police drive through, you're like, oh, good. There's the police. You live in a neighborhood where I live, 
you're like, oh God, there's the police. So <laughs> it's you know it, it, it's a it's not just a black white thing. It's a rich poor thing. The second thing I wanted to say about what you're talking about now, the uh, with the textbooks, the ultimate goal of these people is to protect the patriarchal white patriarchal narrative. Um, you know the founding fathers were all men from Europe and. The country belongs to the, to white people, therefore, et cetera. That's not the job of government. Ultimately, pushing narratives is whenever government starts pushing narratives, I, I got to you know, you need to be a little bit worried about the fascist state and so on. Thanks for taking my call. Thanks, Eric. Jasmine, your thoughts. I'll just say this. Um, in Cle- <laughs> Thank you for your call, too, by the way. Uh, my mother used to put bumper stickers on the back of my brother's car. Um, this is raising a black son in America. College stickers, Penn State, Ohio State, just so when, if ever, he got pulled over, police officers knew he was an educated young black male. Um, that was just how we grew up, sitting down, having a conversation. Just like Will said, when you get pulled over, this is what you do. You don't make any sudden movements. I think about things. I have cousins who um, are autistic, who are, you know, who are driving. These mannerisms, oftentimes you just don't know who people are and what they're going through. You don't know why people are nervous. Some some are criminals. Yes, some are. But the majority of the time, people are just genuinely nervous. We're living in a chaotic world at this point right now. Um, so, yeah, that's 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 my story. That's the painted picture of uh, Jasmine Monroe's lifestyle at home. Just being careful and cautious. Yeah, it's a reality. Um, yeah, I mean, those are not conversations that my white family had with me to yeah. be. Frank, you know, that was not um, something that came up over the dinner table that when you get pulled over, if you get pulled over, you need to do all of these things just in case. Because, you know, I as a white woman, I do not live in a world where generally I would assume a police officer is going to look at me and imbue some sort of criminality based on the pigmentation of my skin. True that. Um, I want to steer back a little bit to the um, Moms for Liberty discussion. Um, Nate, one thing that your colleague wrote about um, this week was, you know, the fact that they didn't object to the textbook. They didn't take a position objecting to the text, but but they did tweet about whether or not the the lessons contained in the textbook were worthwhile or were in fact, you know, some sort of uh, indoctrination. I would guess, for lack of a better word, um, talk a little bit about you know what that tweet said and what it suggested. I mean, it's going to sound like I'm presenting a one-sided sort of hyperbolic recounting of what happened because it's so ridiculous. There, The Moms for Liberty account was offended because of some very inoffensive anodyne language in this textbook, encouraging young people to ask questions about issues they don't understand, to learn about their community, uh, to consider attending like a city council meeting. Like these are... And and I guess their claim was that this is, uh, that this is uh, in in their parlance, you know, sort of grooming children into becoming activists. And it is, of course, not that. It is precisely just what it said it was, which is encouraging kids to ask questions. Um, these are people who are just determined to look for problems in the most, uh, you know, again, inoffensive, unremarkable text possible. It was a very stupid thing for them to point out and, and an embarrassing thing. And uh, it, like, I just, you know, again, like it, this is what, this is what they were objecting to. It's, it's 
you know, it, it's it's absurd to even have to recount it, to be to be honest. One of the things that was uh, objected to was a lesson titled Good Citizens Learn About Their Community. And it says good citizens learn about their community. They think about problems that need to be solved. They research their community leaders. Um, they attend community meetings. You can read articles online or in newspapers. You can ask questions you don't understand. Uh, that That's basically fairly boilerplate civics lessons, Will. So I asked the Moms for Liberty uh, committee chair specifically about that tweet uh, when, when I spoke with her. Um, and, you know, we, we had a good, it was a good conversation. Um, her specific re- response or answer was um, that the sc- their belief was a screenshot told second graders to write to community leaders um, and that second graders should be, they, sh- children should be older when they start to do that. Children need a foundation at that age. Uh, of 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 civics, of social studies, of history, to be able to have that foundation, then build from it when they when they ask their leaders questions. And then you know uh, the the question was, well, as a second grader, would you have you know emailed your leader? And I said, well, honestly, as a second grader, I pushed my mom to vote for Paul Songus instead of Bill Clinton in the Democratic primary, and I researched both of them and said. We're voting for Paul Songus. That's what I did in second grade. So, you know, it, it, we're all different. We're all different, and, th- and that is that is exactly what I said. It's like you know, students are different. Um, you know, I had a, well, I have a third grader now, and yesterday evening we sat and watched network news, and the first story was about the uh, special counsel report uh, into President Biden, and you know the uh, another story about President Trump. And as soon as the stories were over, we pressed mute and said, okay, buddy, do you have questions? And he had all sorts of questions. He's eight years old. So children are curious. Mm-hmm. And I, I did mention, I was like, look, they're, they're, some children are interested, some children are not. And their position was um, that as children get older and more educated, they could have an opinion because they, they thought that a second grader was too young to add their position was to, second graders too young to advocate or be an activist and the 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 lesson uh, that was just part of an eight-pronged lesson um where that about being good citizens other things about being good citizens having looked at the book were and i'm reading verbatim you know not teasing us uh, not teasing a student and reporting bullying behavior to adults uh being respectful of other people's opinions and ideas obeying rules in their community thinking about problems that need to be resolved um you know, in research community leaders work together with others, help solve problems as well as care for the community. Those were the modules in that same second grade social studies curriculum. So Claire, the idea that, you know, kids are too young for that. Um, this was something that Mark Woods actually tweaked them a little bit about. He said, well, presumably that's an adults only activity, kind of like a threesome. Um, I mean, that is a, you know, a, a note of this scandal that has emerged with the leader of moms for Liberty, uh, Bridget Ziegler, who, um, whose husband was investigated, no longer going to be charged, but basically sort of exposing their personal proclivities uh, as adults. Well, certainly, you know, I support the Ziegler's right to uh, have consenting relations in their home uh, with adults. That is their right. Um, But, you know, 
It's interesting to me that Moms for Liberty thinks that they are in a position to say when children should become active citizens. I mean, basically, this was a lesson in critical thinking when you look at it at its bare bones. It's like, hey, examine the world around you, ask questions, be involved. Do they not want people to grow up to be active and involved and critical thinkers? Because that's what my takeaway is from their objection to this just mundane part of this curriculum. I mean, we're talking about what a five minute segment in a class, Mm -hmm. Um, but it's just Moms for Liberty seems to think that they are the authority on what is appropriate for all children in America and when. We've got a call, Janet Jacksonville. Welcome to the program, Janet. Hi, um, the woman who just got done speaking, I agree with just about everything she said, so bravo. Um, As far as, you know, teaching our children, anybody thinks they don't get a free education from other students. Shoot, I just fell down. Sorry. Are you okay? okay? baloney. Children, yeah, I'm okay. Children um, speak amongst themselves all the time, and half of what they're telling each other is not true, and the other half is just ridiculous. But anyway, um, the other thing is, is the way our educational system is right now, we couldn't teach children or show children a Ken Burns special because of what it teaches about our Negro history, slavery, and all that, which is just insane because Ken Burns does fabulous documentaries. Think about that for a minute. And the other thing is, is you know, it's, it's yes, the, the black community from childhood to adulthood, all their lives need to worry about being pulled over by police, no doubt, right. especially well, just about anywhere. I'm not going to say especially anywhere. Thanks. Um, Thanks, Janet. I'm just going to take a couple more calls here if I can. Linda and Mandarin, good morning, Linda. Good morning. Um, it seems like Moms for Liberty is more interested in getting um, headlines or bites because uh, I, I grew up in rural South Carolina. Uh, working class parents may not always have time to come in March to school, but my parents, if they had wanted uh, to meet with a teacher, we've always advocated for students. And it's really very bougie to think that they have the authority to say when young people should be active. It sounds like they just want, you know, a bunch of mindless young people that they can control. It's sad where we are in this country and monstrosity, in my opinion, is indicative of our decline. Thank you. Linda, thank you so much. We've got Javon calling. Good morning, Javon. Good morning. Uh, I'll just say there's some second graders I trust more with the vote right now than there are some, you know, 72-year-olds who have been voting for decades. Let's inform our children. Let's empower our children. But don't pretend that just because somebody is older, they are somehow smarter or wiser because current evidence suggests otherwise. Thank you. Appreciate the call. Um, I would second that. Yeah, Jasmine, go ahead. <laughs> I was just going to say, um, I do Teacher of the Week for First Coast News. Um, walking inside of some of those classrooms, these kids are smarter than the adults. I'm talking about the conversations that they have, how eloquently, how eloquently is myself can speak, <laughs> um, and just the, their opinions. And it's so good to see um, kids at two, at three years old, asking questions that adults are afraid to ask themselves. Right. Um, Nate, I think you got blocked this week by Moms for Liberty. Is that? <laughs> I did. Yeah. Oh, congratulations. Um, I, <clears throat> I mean, you're I doing your job. The, yeah, I joined the the pile on on, on uh, their their tweet about kids asking questions. I something uh, 
Claire touched on uh, that that struck me about this objection to this very inoffensive content um, was the uh, just the kind of brazenness of it. I mean, Moms for Liberty, this this Ziegler case is basically like a nuclear bomb of hypocrisy uh, brought down on on one of the co-founders of this organization like y'all can just go away. Like you don't have to say anything like that is always an option. Uh, and, and just the sort of like complete lack of introspection by these people, like not just to complain about textbooks at all, but just like the most, like pointing out the most inoffensive thing. I mean, their explanation that, that will read is just kind of a pathetic straining to justify why you might possibly think, you know, this wasn't teaching kids to be activists. It was teaching them to just be functional people. It was laying the foundation for how you were supposed to grow up and interact with history in your community. Like, it's just ridiculous. And, you know, we don't have to pretend that there is some possible good faith reason for it. I mean, there was a time when the question authority was kind of a countercultural statement, right? The idea that you're not just going to listen to what you're told and you're going to ask some questions. I mean, I totally agree. Um, I, I think I might have been second or third grade when, you know, my parents used to say this is not a democracy. This is a dictatorship in their house. Um, and I got funny one time and said, no, you're being totalitarian. And they absolutely wore me out for that one. Um, my point is, is that, like, children are very curious. I mean, in the car this week on the way to school with my elementary school age child, he was asking, wait. So who was we were talking about Thomas Jefferson and listening to some things. And he's like, wait, who was Sally? Well, we explained who Sally Hemings was to an eight year old. I mean, children are curious. Um, I will say about Moms for Liberty that their position is usually that they are loving their children in the way that they know how. And they believe um, that protecting their children from some of the. Uh, less flattering parts of history at a very young age is a way to help build a foundation for when they get older. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm not saying it's right. I'm saying that's what they believe. So there are different perspectives on how to parent. Let's move on now uh, to a story out of Tallahassee. A group of admitted white supremacists this week supported a bill that would prohibit the removal of Confederate statues. Now, that bill is widely supported by Republicans, but the comments made some very uncomfortable, including Clay County Republican Senator Jennifer Bradley. I want the record to be perfectly clear. The comments that I heard today from several gentlemen, I'm looking right at you, were vile. They were bigoted. They were racist. They are what is tearing apart our state. They are what is driving a wedge between people. And you are the reason I am vacillating on whether or not to even vote yes, because it looks like I endorse your hatred. And I do not. Vacillating. Um, but she did vote, Claire, for the um, for the bill, as did all of the other Republicans there. Um, how much of a association with white supremacy would be too much? for people to support this. (laughs) Any? uh, Shouldn't it be any association? Um, I report on white supremacist groups and hate groups and extremists for the Daily Dot regularly, and they love this bill. Um, They're thrilled about it. And, uh, you know, the bill specifically makes it very, uh, it's untenable for communities to remove statues, and it's 
you know, you can say what you want, but it is about Confederate statues. And a lot of it has to do with the Confederate statue that was removed here in December. Um, you know, it takes away home rule from communities is worth pointing out. But, you know, these statues were widely erected during the Jim Crow era. They were they put forth this false notion of the South that's romanticized. And, um, you know, it just it further divides us in uh, along racial lines. Um and just for these Republicans and like you're it's wonderful that Senator Bradley actually said and called out the racism, but then to just turn around and vote for it, uh, which, you know, what side are you on here? It was sort of surreal to hear. I mean, you know, yes, it was nice that she said what she said on on one level, but on another to say, well, this makes it look like I'm I'm siding with you. Yeah, it does. Like, OK, I, I agree. Um, so like, what could you possibly do that would make it clear you don't? And I don't know that, that that's what we got out of this. So it was just kind of an odd, um, an odd moment. And, and I I think spoke out loud some dynamics that, that it's, you know, clear to almost anyone watching or are really at play here. It was almost like who was twisting your arm, you know, because you said one thing and then you did another and thinking about it it's just like going back to saying that's exactly how you just went off in that room is exactly how people feel against it so and then you vote for it <laughs> it's it's like they're acting as if support for this bill is like a like an act of nature or it's like well I can't stop a rainstorm of course I'm going to vote for this but gosh I wish I you know I wish I could change the weather like but well, you actually can like this isn't some unchangeable uh, uh, factor in the world. Right. And as Claire kind of alluded to, there is a Jacksonville tie to this. It's co-sponsored. This bill is co-sponsored by Clay County uh, or by Jacksonville Senator Clay Yarbrough. Um, and uh, the companion bill is sponsored by Jacksonville Representative Dean Black, um, who's the former head of the local GOP, both white lawmakers. Um, now, it, it looked, Will, that there might be that this very contentious committee meeting might actually produce, you know, enough pushback. I know that the... Um, that the uh, there was discussion about whether that's actually going to be able to continue. Um, Senate President Kathleen Pasadomo said, you know, there are problems with this bill. There are problems in perceptions. And so she said, I'm not going to bring a bill to the floor that is so abhorrent to everybody. Um, do you think that this is going to stall this bill because of this controversy? You would think that people who represent anyone in Jacksonville would not align themselves with white supremacists based on what happened at Grand Park in August. That's you you would think that. You would think that um statues and monuments to losers, because the Confederacy lost the Civil War. There was no lost cause. They lost. They were beaten. They waved the white flag in Appomattox. And the America that I've grown up in for almost four decades is one that only celebrates winners. Is the, is the team that loses the Super Bowl on Sunday going to be celebrated like the victors? The true victors of the Super Bowl. Well, they, if they're married to Taylor Swift eventually. <laughs> so you think, so you're saying you like think that. the 49ers are going to win. Yeah, I'm just saying. <laughs> so, but, but to the, that's a fair point about that. But seriously, like, I mean, just this idea of, I, I want to say I saw Clay Yarbrough at the vigil in Grand Park. So just to say, oh, well, no, white supremacy is bad and then have anything to do with this bill is just is is a choice. And um, 
I, I am less of the type of person who believes what someone says and more of what they do. And people have a chance to show what they actually do and what they actually mean Just with this bill. Really quickly, want to get to this issue of the home uh, and garden sweepstakes house that has been running into a little bit of a regulatory nightmare. Um, Claire, is that going to disrupt people's uh, dreams of a beautiful multi-million dollar home on the marsh? It doesn't look like it will. Although, I mean, the builder, what were they thinking? You know, just I always say, ask for forgiveness. You I know, mean, I get, guess that's what get, they were you thinking. Get what you want. It sounds like it's going to be fine. <laughs> yeah. um, but, you know, we should protect our wetlands in Florida. This is a delicate ecosystem yeah. and builders and developers have been allowed to just run roughshod over it for decades. Um, you know, is sort of like a kernel of this issue. But well, I think it'll be fine. It's time for our lightning round team. Um I'm going to start with you, Claire. What you got cooking? Um, you know, I've been following the Florida Supreme Court hearing the challenge to the abortion amendment that will be possibly going on the ballot in November. And I know we'll all be looking forward eagerly, eagerly to see whether or not they rule that that can go on to the ballot. Nate, what you got going? Well, you know, next week, uh, the JEA trial starts uh, in the sense that we'll get jury selection and, and lots of other stuff. So I'm sort of gearing up for that. All right, Jasmine Monroe. We're working on our living legacies at uh, First Coast News. We have interviewed uh, Dr. Johnetta Cole. Um, this week is Eric Mann. He is the CEO and president of the YMCA. You should hear his story on First Coast Plus. Excellent. I look forward to it. Will Brown. You know, earlier this week was National Girls and Women in Sports Day. Um, politicians, pundits, and a lot of people had a lot to say about supporting girls and women in sports. Well, you know what? People can actually go and support girls and women in sports this weekend. Uh, Stanton, Episcopal, St. John's, and Christ Church all play playoff soccer games tonight, and Jacksonville women's lacrosse starts its season tomorrow at noon. So if you really believe in women in sports, go support them with your presence. Our go-to soccer man. And I just want to give a plug to the Fort Mose Day Jazz and Blues series. I went to the opening night last night. Uh, Preservation Hall Jazz is there tonight. Worth going. Beautiful site. So You saw my Rattler Common? There. Yeah, I did. Mm. Well, thank you all for being here. Nate Monroe, Jasmine Monroe, Will Brown, Claire Goforth. Appreciate all of your insights. Thanks, Sam. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. And up next, JME's Matt Shaw talks with the producer of NPR's Tiny Desk Concert. Congaree Pen, dedicated to agriculture and culinary endeavors, offering field-to-fork dining and outdoor experiences on over 300 acres. Sip, dine, explore. Information at congareeandpen.com.
At ViStar Credit Union, we believe in helping members reach their financial goals and building stronger communities. It's why we offer our members better rates and give back to the places we call home. ViStar Credit Union. Visit ViStarCU.org join. Mayo Clinic, working to conquer the unconquerable by using data and AI to create personalized gene roadmaps to better fight cancer. More at MayoClinic.org Florida. Wayne Hogan of the Terrell Hogan Personal Injury and Wrongful Death Law Firm. Serious injury cases are complex, and civil trial attorneys present the evidence juries need to see and hear. More at waynehogan.law. Tank of the Bangers, everybody. One of the most popular music performance video series in the world, NPR Music's Tiny Desk Concerts continue to delight and inspire. In late January, the Tiny Desk Contest, NPR Music's annual nationwide search for the next great undiscovered artist, began accepting applications for its 10th contest. Tank of the Bangas, Fantastic Negrito, and Little Moon are among the ever-growing list of past winners, all of whom have gone on to tour nationally and become household names. The contest returns with a new panel of judges, many of them renowned artists in their own right. And if you're an unsigned artist, they're asking for you to make a video. Bobby Carter, one of the Tiny Desk Concert producers and a returning Tiny Desk Contest judge, is here to talk about what's new at the most famous desk in America. Uh, Bobby Carter, thanks so much for joining me. It's great to be here, Matt. Thank you. So before we talk about this year's contest, I just want to touch on the enduring influence and the draw of the Tiny Desk. It's clearly become a place that artists, uh, no matter the genre, uh, really want to perform. Uh, From artists looking to reach a wider audience to more mainstream artists that probably don't maybe not even need the exposure as much. I'm thinking like Post Malone or Usher. Um, Has it become a heavy lift to field all that interest and curate who gets to come in and play? Um, Yeah, you know, because we're thinking about now, I'm thinking about the the sheer volume of artists and bands who want to try to uh, play the Tiny Desk. Artists you mentioned from, you know, your favorite artists from, you know, major pop, popular artists to... Um, a larger number of emerging artists who would just like the opportunity. So just fielding that that volume, um, that's the real challenge because, you know, we shoot two or three a week. There's only 365 days in a year. <laughs> so just, just the, the, the major challenge is figuring out who we grant the opportunity to and who we say no to. And that's, that's a real challenge because with, with limited time, you're going to have to say no to some things, yeah. which has never been easy for me. Sure, sure. And uh, with so many performances happening in your office, uh, when do you get any work done? <laughs> well, it's it. listen, it's, it's, a, <laughs> it's the greatest work time perk um, in the industry. Um, it's, it's usually during lunchtime. So imagine uh, eating lunch and people, you know, at, at one o'clock say, hey, come up and see Usher. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, you talked about volume of... Um, content let's jump to the contest because you have a lot of videos you're going to have to be watching and i know this year the winner gets to go on the tiny desk tour which is uh something that's happened in the past and there's a mentorship aspect yeah i think um our team the tiny desk contest team in huddling in preparation for our 10th year i think they did a great job coming up with with better ways to actually serve the, the not only the contestants not only the winner but the contestants as well so this tour is obvious, obviously, well, it's usually the first major tour for uh, the winner. 
sure. um, where they can travel the country um, and show the show the country what they're made of. In that, also, we'll pick uh, contestants from the cities who who probably who didn't win to to possibly open for them. But the the thing that I'm most excited about this year is this mentorship. Is the mentorship? I think um, when you think about the music industry today, it's very complex. Um, and if you're if you win this contest and you're 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 transitioning from a day job, um, you may not be completely educated on all that the, that the industry entails. And that you know that could be anything from how to read a contract, uh, knowing what publishing means to to an artist, uh, rights management, uh, public publicity and marketing. Um, this mentorship opportunity is gonna is gonna provide a bit more insight. Uh, a little bit of handholding or, or walking arm in arm, if you will. And I think it's going to be a game changer for the contest. It's going to be a game changer for the winner because, you know, in conversations in the past with, with previous winners and contestants, that's the one thing that they, that they talked about. And something else that's um, expanded this year is the, the judges panel, right? Um, yeah. In addition to yourself and popular artists like Julian Baker and Muna, yeah. there's industry experts uh, watching the videos. This is a panel um, with expertise that, from my view of it, is it's broad and far-reaching, that expertise. You've yeah. got jazz aficionados like Kiana Faircloth, uh, music mm. publicists, DJs from NPR m- music stations uh, across the country, a uh, panel of heavy hitters with yeah. a knowledge that I think mirrors the diversity of the entries that you get every year. Am I right? Uh, 100%. I'm so proud of this, uh, of this, this panel. Um, we're leaving no stone unturned, um, no matter what you do. Um, musically, there isn't a judge who is is not into that, who can't open up to that. The one thing we all have in common is that we love music in general. There's a wide net here. So I'm so proud that we've invited the insiders here again to provide that knowledge and that wisdom. Um, like you said, we have Tiny Desk alumni like Nikki and Duran Bernard. So there's no one on that panel um, who I, 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 I'm just so proud uh, to to be alongside of, of this panel of judges this year. I just truly believe 2024 is going to be a monumental uh, year for the contest and for the winner and, and maybe even some contestants. Yeah, and so the contest is open until February 21st. Uh, for Jacksonville right. area artists who are listening uh, to this interview, any uh, advice for those thinking about submitting a video? Uh, if you're thinking about it and you haven't quite made the decision, come on over. Please yeah. submit your video we're watching just know that everyone is watching someone is watching your video um so you just never know the difference between success um and the opposite of whatever success is is exposure this is an opportunity for exposure uh julian baker is going to watch your video (laughs) nephew's going to watch your video lauren medina is going to watch your video a host of others we're going to watch your video and we're gonna we're gonna consider you know you you will be considered Well, what a great platform, Uh, Bobby Carter. Thanks so much for your time. Uh, You've got your work cut out for you. Good luck. I'm excited, man. Good to talk to you, Matt. The 2024 Tiny Desk Contest is underway. This year's submission window is open until midnight on Wednesday, February 21st. For more information on how to submit your video, visit jacksmusic.org or tinydeskcontest.npr.org. That's our program. We welcome your feedback, comments, or suggested topics. Just email firstcoastconnect at wjct.org. 
Today's program will be rebroadcast at 8 p.m. And all of our shows are archived at WJCT.org and on your favorite podcast platform. Don't forget to listen Sunday afternoon at 4 for What's Health Got to Do With It when neurologist Dr. Joe and guests discuss heart health. Join us again Monday when we discuss local efforts to preserve and promote election integrity. I'm Ann Schindler, and you've been listening to First Coast Connect on WJCT News 89.9. Support for First Coast Connect is provided by Baptist Health and the North Florida TPO.